Hello everybody, my name is Jackie Zweig. Oad Fadid and I are proud to present our brand new series called The Conversation. Throughout the year, we have many incredible speakers come and talk to us about the different parshas, topics, holidays, everything. So we decided that it would be a good idea to have our speakers come and have a conversation with them and get a little more details into who they are and their views on being a proper Jew involved in Torah life. This week, we have Shlomo Raphaelov joining us. Thank you so much, Shlomo, for coming. And Ohad has the first question. So uh, let's start this off. In general, when you talk about Torah, a big idea that we see throughout is the methodology that you use when analyzing Parsha is through Petuchas and Stumas, which is generally not viewed as. Usually when people talk about the Parsha, they take one idea or one question that they have on a specific verse in the, in the Parsha, and then they start analyzing it. And what we see generally when discussing Torah with you is that it, there's a, a, a broader picture, and you're using these terms called Petuchas and Stumas. So maybe you can elaborate on what exactly is Petuchas and Stuma, and when, where did it originate from? I guess the first place to look obviously would be the Torah. The Torah itself is written in a fashion that wouldn't lend itself to help the reader um, per se. So for instance, there were not any end of verses or end of chapters or beginning of new parshas or even the trap that would allow you to be able to read and memorize the tunes and the flow of the sentences and so on and so forth. So when looking at the actual Torah and actually trying to understand the information, one will see that it is broken down into parts. So basically there's two. There's, there's a petucha and then there's a stuma. A petucha literally translated means open. It is open. And what it means is that the line, the remainder of the line in which the text of the Torah is written, that pasuk or verse is written, is open. The remaining of the line is open. And what that indicates is that what comes to follow is a new topic. Now it flows from the previous topic, but it is a separate topic. So to give an example, you could be discussing in a conversation between people, and you can be discussing trees, and then the next topic is now you're discussing vegetables, and so on and so forth. Although it is a new topic, it flowed from the previous topic, right? Then you have stuma, which is the second, and it literally means closed. What it indicates to you is that the information essentially is more connected than the previous. Setuma means closed. So there would be a nine-letter space between the previous text and the following text. There's a nine-space difference. That nine-space difference indicates to you that although what we are seeing now is a new topic, it is a subtopic directly correlating back to the previous topic. So if you look at that information, you know, that's all you have. So now the question is that who decided to put these breaks in and why do they put them in this way? And how do I know what it is that I know? So essentially there is a Midrash in Vayikra that I don't currently have in front of me, which um, Rashi quotes, the Radak quotes, and many other Rishonim quote as in the way that Moshe Rabbeinu was writing, he had paused. And these are the two times that he paused. He would pause long pauses, as in the Petucha. He would take a long break from the information that God had given him. And then he would take a shorter break for the information that God gave him when we see a stuma. So what that tells you is that Moshe Rabbeinu would reflect on the information that God gave him longer 
by Abtucha, and he'd reflect on the information that God gave him shorter with a stuma. But it was all that information that he would reflect upon. So in doing so, if that's the way that Moshe Rabbeinu was taught, and that's the most way that Moshe Rabbeinu transmitted over the Torah, then why should we be taught any different? Why should we transmit any different? Right? I think that's the very basis of it. Now, the Gemara and many other places, Midrashim and so on and so forth, and we can get into the common sense behind it and the philosophies behind it and so on and so forth, all seem to be pointing directly to this. And the main factor, I guess, the underlying issue is that the context of information will define the information. So let me elaborate. If it would be that you did not have any ptuchot and stumot, you would just have one thing leading to the next without necessarily a flow or I would say more of uh, a run-on paragraph, a run-on story right? any person that's ever written a book or written a story knows that it requires paragraphs in order to differentiate between the different ideas and then to be able to pull them all together into this one story so now the Torah essentially, is doing that in the sense that it is writing five different books ordering them with all different titles and within those titles there are topics and subtopics that are meant to begin and end where they do and they have been put forth in front of us in order to be able to see them at certain times I know that they've been put forth in these certain orders beginning and ending as a parsha, or actually as it should be called a sidra specifically is because Chazal have two ways to be able to actually go through the Torah once in every three years and once in every year right they would either complete the torah three years it would take them to complete or they would complete the torah in one year now either way the petuchot and the stumot would always be the same it's only a matter of what you are seeing that week in terms of how many petuchot and how many stumot so regardless they're still showing you the information in the context of so the question is that what is the overall context that you're meant to see it in and we have come out with the overall confident is what we have today the overall context is the parsha the sidra of the week the seder the sidra so you're saying essentially just to recap that essentially petuchot can be seen as chapters and setumot are essentially sub ideas within those chapters that make up those petuchot and then, I wouldn't call them chapters only because I honestly <coughs> believe like more of a chapter is the sidra of the week so okay. that it would have a topic, right? You would have the sidra, you would have the topics within the sidra, and then there are subtopics, the mm-hmm. stumot. That's what, I would, that's what I would think. Now, I'm happy to be wrong, but that's what I would think. Right. Um, yeah, so, go ahead. So essentially, a, so, what we generally use today, though, is this chapters and, and verses. Where did that come in? Because today we don't generally go by the petuchot and stumot, as the, at least most people don't. So I need the information in front of me as to exactly the times and dates, and I'm happy to find the source and just actually, you know, put a link to it or whatever it is, like that type of thing. But it was made originally by the St. James Bible, I believe. I think that was the first people to do it. Um, Essentially, it's come by the Christians because they came across the problem is that you can define things contextually, but it makes it very difficult to look up something if you don't have numbers, right? And the thing with numbers is they don't necessarily tell a story. They don't tell you the information, but they tell you where to find the information. So you'll have page numbers and line numbers and so on and so forth. In any other book, 
But in this one, we didn't have, so it made it difficult to find. So if, let's say, you were looking in a book, how would you know which verse to, to look and where it would it be found? So they broke it up into chapters and, and into verses as well. But that was never done by the rabbis. It was only kept because of ease. Right. Never in terms which of transmitting information. Right, which for our sake doesn't really provide us any significant uh, value other than ease uh, to, to learn the Torah. Uh, so what you're saying it is doesn't it add value in terms of transmission? It only adds value in terms of location of sukim. Right. So what's emerging is this idea that Torah is extremely con- contextual, and that there's a very specific context that we're meant to approach the Torah with. That idea is something that we would have to elaborate. But what I am saying is the Torah is definitely <coughs> doing that. The Torah is definitely providing information in a specific context that it wants you to be seen, and it's been carried out by our rabbis. The question is that why is the information necessary to be seen like that? We can see through Gemaras and so on and so forth. Does this mean that some of the information should be thought about in terms of the information that is there and separate from the information that comes later? Meaning that we should try and understand this information as is separate from other information, let's say a couple of lines later? The self-contained idea? Yeah. Like what people do? how they self-contain ideas and they just basically attack the Rashi on it. I think that there's a definitely a value to being able to look at a text and have it be the entire world to you. I think that there's an extremely um, beautiful value in that and being able to take apart a text and so on and so forth or a verse and being able to see it as if it's the entirety but the real judgment of its truth and its beauty and the place at which it holds is the ability to plug it back into the puzzle. So, yes, you can zoom in, but if you cannot zoom out, then the zooming in itself was never valid. At least the outcome of the zoom, right? The, the shot that has come out and so on and so forth. I can tell you a thousand shots, but if it doesn't fit within the text and it doesn't fit within the context, then it doesn't fit. It doesn't exist. It's not real. Does that also imply that each of these different psucha and stumas, do they have the idea that they codify some idea in and of itself or they happen to just be talking on the same topic and which wants to be separate when we talk about from the next topic is there some idea specified in this stuma or psucha or is it just in general yes there are always ideas that are specified within ptuchot and stumot there are bigger ideas in the ptuchot and sub-ideas in the stumot of that bigger idea, the Petucha. So, for instance, if we're talking about dogs, I can specify in a stuma, but a labradoodle, right? Dogs, in general, are man's best friends. And then the subtopic is, well, a labradoodle specifically has a special bond in any other dog, if that was true or not true. Mm-hmm. And they have brown, goldish hair or whatever it is, you know? You can get into the specificity of it. Now, the context of why that is there is entirely relevant to the sub to the big topic of dogs. Now, is that is that more of an informational thing? We want to keep some informational uh, apart from other information, right? We don't put dogs and trees in the same in the same uh, conversation. But is it also more meant to bring out a specific idea and concept that is involved in this topic, or is it just more of an informational thing? Let's separate it. More sure, sure, sure. So it's not more of an informational thing, a meaning without, it's not just informational, let's put it that way. The idea of what the Torah is trying to do by placing things next to the other is, is meant to understand the context in which it appears. 
So, for example, the famous one that everyone questions is why does Amalek come where he comes? Right? He had many opportunities to attack us, yet he attacks us specifically there. And Chazal point out that it comes specifically after Kriyat Yamsuf. So, what was his reasoning? Right? And why is it that it's placed here for us? And what are we supposed to learn after this? So, clearly, they're telling you the context in which it's appearing. Amalek appears in these type of contexts. He will attack these type of ideologies, these type of regimes, or these type of cultures, or these types. That is what he is trying to accomplish. Now, why is it? It's because that's what he's attacking. He has a, he has a stand against these things. And I'm happy to elaborate at a later time about that. But the idea is that all of the Torah is full with that. It's full with that. In fact, we have from Chazal, it says, Ein muktam u'charba Torah, which means the Torah is not meant to be in a historical context. Which means, again, that it's not telling you the history of something. It's not going to tell you, well, first in 1950 this happened, then in 1951 this happened, and 1953 this, and 1956, and so on and so forth. It is telling you dates that are rambled and jambled. So if it's not supposed to be telling you dates and orders, then what is it telling you? Because the dates of something happening is irrelevant. It's more relevant as to why those things were happening and why we are seeing them in the context that they are being put in front of us as opposed to the historical date because the context in which they are seen are far more important than the information of when they happened. Right. Wonderful. Yeah. And I think maybe this, this idea of, um, of context shows you that not only when you're studying the Torah, I meaning you have to have the Torah itself needs to be broken up in this, in this structure of context, but I think you also need to have um, a Rav to pass over, to give you a Masora and to embed you within a larger framework sim- than simply just you on your own analyzing Torah and taking it for yourself in your local situation, but rather providing you that breadth of context. Um, maybe you can elaborate, Mim, on the importance of a Rav, and in specific in terms of context. Right. Okay, so I'd say the, yeah, I guess the importance of a Rav specifically in a context, right? That's the question? Mm-hmm. So how do I know this information? I was told by a Rav myself, my Rav specifically. And um, the reason why I believe it clicked is because it just it's, it's what I found to be beautiful, meaning that everything has a place. There's a specific reason and point that it can be addressed and seen in its complete entirety, which makes it beautiful. And in terms of having the value of a Rav, um, and in general, how that fits in terms of context and so on and so forth. There's the idea that Shivim Panim Torah, there's 70 faces to Torah. And um, many people kind of forget the Panim uh, word. They said there's, you know, there's 70 ideas to Torah, but the idea that it's a face, the face is the entire picture. So there are 70 entire pictures to Torah. And for you to extrapolate a specific idea without seeing it in its face, without seeing it in its entire picture, then you're not a part of the 70, essentially. There's 70 complete visions. And even that requires a context. So if I am zooming in and I forget even one of the contexts, right? If I forget to plug it into any one of them, then it cannot be true. Saying that it's possible to have an idea that doesn't necessarily fit into a context and then it'll be off kilter. It doesn't have to fit into my context as long as it fits into a context, as long as it can be seen in a vision that is coherent and holistic, right? That flows between the entirety, that draws together all the pieces, that makes a puzzle. Right. 
It's probably a very broad question, but do you think all contexts are are equal, or some? Obviously, there has to be some super context that shivin panim, meaning it's all one Torah. So, what do you think is the super context that essentially all the seventy panim fit into? I'll tell you when I feel, when I meet it, I guess. I don't know it. I have to work on my own personal panim in the sense where I'm going through a vision of how I believe and how I see the Torah. Um, not because can, maybe you can identify specific core ideas that are found in other many con- over over many contexts of Torah. Sure, th- that the context itself is important. I think that you know speaks for itself that in order to have a context or seventy panim or even one panim, you have to have an entire context. The information's got to be given with a flow. So I believe that's what they all share. So, but again, if it doesn't have that, then you've lost the entire thing of what it was it was trying to achieve. Uh, the next thing is that by definition it's got to be beautiful so whatever that vision of it is it has to fit in entirely um, which is another way of saying what I said beforehand Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that everyone would agree on that I would think that it's got to remain within human logic right the ability to dictate the outcomes is the you know what the human would articulate as logical what the human would articulate as sensible and uh, yeah, that's what I honestly believe that every context has to have for itself. Have you ever met a context that you knew could be part of the seventy, yet it doesn't doesn't speak to you? So it's kind of hard to accept it as something that makes any sense. I wouldn't say that I clashed with this person in terms of context. Like we had a different context. I would say we'd have a different way of going about the context, but we shared in the context. So, for example, I was lucky enough on last year's Sukkot to meet a Hasidic guy who is entirely religious as a Hasidic Jew, you know, wears the whole nine yards. And his entire life was different than mine. Yet we shared conversations in Torah and we shared ideas in Torah. And he corrected me when I was wrong and, you know, when I was misquoting and so on and so forth. But it was never, like, wrong in terms of the context was wrong. It was... I haven't seen any clashes. I haven't felt any clashes, even with people that I believe live a different lifestyle than I do, right? Um, but I think that's what that meta-consciousness essentially is, is that really this ties together all of it. This vision really, I believe, is the meta. Mm-hmm. It ties it together. That's just my vision. Is It's able to tie together the people that come from the Hasidic backgrounds and given, you know, a Hebrew, you know, articulation of it, or a Yiddish articulation of it, and how they hear it, and how they think. What do you mean by this context? What do you mean by that? What I mean by this context? What I mean by this context is, um, basically. Mm-hmm. His ability to see a text, see a story embedded within a text, and see why the text is in the context that it appears, his ability to be human in a sense that he's able to draw together ideas that are human first. And does this does this mean that there's a context that doesn't imply that at all? Sure, fact, there's an idea. Sixty nine of them? No, I no, I believe that they all have to have that. Because you can't get out of some of the Gemaras, you can't get out of, you know, the different articulations of Gemaras that you know describe um I mean, for example, like 
you can have somebody who's coming from a very, very religious background who doesn't really want to understand necessarily the philosophies and ideologies and the reasonings behind Chazal and therefore finds himself doing things that are seemingly unintelligent or strict or um, unreasonable in a sense because he's defined the information in front of him as such without looking at it in a mega context in a sense. So um, I had a conversation with somebody last night about that actually. Somebody was... We were discussing the strength of angels and he was claiming that man is stronger than angels because man took Torah from angels and that's the way that he viewed that Gemara and to which I you know, pointed out to him afterwards that even if you look at that Gemara it's not, it's not true at all angels gave us Torah but Moshe had to grab onto the Kisei Kavod not to be burnt so it's not a power they were definitely stronger than him but they felt the value of Torah being able to be accomplished and achieved had to be human, not angel. So now, whatever that means and how you want to bring that out, that's where I think the context, you know, may differ. Would you say that the ideas that he thought that he understood would not be in any context? Correct. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about Ramatis and how you got to meet him. When I first went to Derech Chaim, I was shocked by people that were intelligent and seeking truth and being able to cohesively and holistically put together ideas that had to make sense and were durable and they could be pulled apart and they would still last and they were beautiful and ethical and moral and did the Torah just and I learned with these people for a while and I felt painful at the thought of leaving them and painful when I actually had to leave them and so on and so forth and tried to continue on that vision of my own so I began to listening to more of their shirim from a distance and I fell under I I started under his son Shafto I had no idea who Ramatis was at this point and after that I started you know listening to more shirim of those type of people those type of people that I didn't even realize were Talmidim or Chaverim of Ramatis and that vision and that ideology and so on and so forth and then eventually I came to Miami and I was listening to a lot of I had heard at this point of who Ramatis was and the genius of his Torah but I was nowhere near understanding even the openings to Ashiram uh, I couldn't understand the vast majorities of what he was saying and I would listen to his students try to get a grasp on the concepts and then after listening to his students I began to transition into him listening more and more to Ramatis I emailed him told him what it is that he had done for me in terms of his Torah and his vision, um, in terms of the breadth of knowledge and the awareness that he has and the cognition and the humanity. We formed a relationship. We've been speaking ever since, and I only wish that the relationship is stronger. That's the only thing I can wish for myself, really. Right. And it seems like the prerequisite to have a Rav is obviously relationship. That's essentially the the right. underground of it, and almost uh, love and going to college. It's it's almost a, a weird thing to try to share with other people who they see professors and professors are very they're, they give over information, but you don't sure. build a relationship with them. Sure. And when they look at your phone, you have a picture of your rav on it, and they look at you, who the hell is this? Oh, why is he on your phone? You know, you're, it's a little weird. Um, but. That that's a key component, that idea of relationship and love. Sure, so maybe sure. you can elaborate on why that is a must, 
especially when it comes to Torah. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, that's a great point that you brought up in terms of your college professor. I would say, like, um, imagine if you were, you know, you were in a school and you were trying to study from a professor, but a professor that specifically was an evil man, and uh, he just doesn't do nice things, and he's talking to you about business ethics and morality, and you know this man has no ethics and no morality, right? I mean, I think we all have a natural affinity towards people who say one thing and act another. I believe that goes to the human nature of it. So it's actually kind of interesting because in the Torah, the, the, the definition of giving over Torah, the Hilchot Torah in the Rambam, when he writes that your person has to teach over Torah, he doesn't specifically write that I have to teach you. I don't have to go teach somebody else in the community. I don't have to go teach my next door neighbor. I only have a chiyuv to teach my son. And interesting because the Rambam in Hilchot Talmud Torah tells you what the halachic ramifications, what the obligations are and who are you obligated to teach Torah. And the people that he lists are your son and if and your grandson if your son chooses not to. Which tells you that your entire chiyuv is only based on relationship. Because you can only give over information in terms of relationship. Information without relationship is information without context. Right. That's exactly what it is. It's interesting that you brought that up. You're sort of moving relationship and you're tying that together with almost morality with someone who is a good person. A professor can be, an, you're saying, an evil person, someone who acts negatively and he can provide you information, but that information has nothing, it's not embedded in an actual, in his reality. In, Correct. In his, and a relationship shows that you truly identify with how he acts and how he brings that. So what I say by relationship, I mean that A, he's got to have a relationship with you, but also in the relationship, he's got to have a relationship to the text itself. In the sense that you see that he is connected to that. He lives his life by it. He will die by it. He'll he'll walk with it. He'll go to business with that mentality. He won't cheat. He'll be honest. He'll be fair. Mm. And uh, in the sense, that's why the Rabbanim are called Chaverim, because they have the Chibur, essentially, to that information into life itself. So if you find a Rav like that, and you're able to connect with him like that, and he's able to have that relationship with you like that, and that's in the same way that the Rav is your, your father, Right, the rabbanim have talmidim, and they're called banim. You know, he's your son, because the entire relationship is meant to be that of deep, deep, deep connection. Right, and it's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle, and if you can't see the lifestyle, then it's it's not life. Right, and then it's just play. You just you're just you're acting. Nobody likes the actor. And if, you, and if your information is different from the way you live then that's not really what Torah is at all, right? Correct, right, for it's sure. It's not an information thing at all. It's supposed to affect us. Of course, of course. And do you think you can have many rabbim? Or do you have to have one rav and essentially stick to him? I think it's a loaded question. Um, the question, I think, should be, can you have many rabbim at one time? Okay. Do you know what I mean? I don't mean to you mean to take that out. I mean, like... I think what you were asking is, can you have many rabbim at one specific time? Because yes, you could have many rabbim. I can have many rabbim when I'm talking about 5, 7, 9, 12, 50, and so on and so forth. But uh, many rabbim at one time, it's difficult to say. I mean, if they all share the same vision, I would say that, yeah, it's potentially possible. It's potentially possible to be pulling from all different avenues, but they all lead to the same stream. Right, if I'm pulling from different streets and they all lead the same way, then that's perfectly fine. But if I'm pulling in different directions, then as the Gemara Megillah says, you first fill up by one rav and then you go to the next. 
Because you need to get an entire context before you can move on to the next. But if they're all different facets of the same context, then you're just seeing the same thing just in different ways. And you can pull it together. And that's what I've done personally. I found the people that I've found were all within one context and have different visions and different ways of expressing that context. And that's what I think also the, the, the Mishnah and Perkei Elbot says. says. When you find the Rabs, you also have an obligation to learn from their students. That's what the Rambam writes too. They have an obligation to learn from their students as well. You have a chi of Talmud Torah to learn from your Rob's students because it's a manifestation of his vision just in ways that they've, you may have understood that they can articulate better to you. Yeah. And this idea of having uh, learning from the Talmudim as well, sort of basing your life not necessarily specifically around the Rav only, but around the environment that the Rav has, I think that ties into uh, the idea that we Jews are notorious community makers. That we're never, there's never a Jew by himself. There's always a community that he's around. And all our religious duties, all our acts are always within community and tend members. And So maybe talk about the importance of having community on top of only having a Rav. Um, to pull it into the context and then moving it to the Rav, to the community, I would say that the importance of the community just in terms of the context, is it's the backdrop in which you can tell that your context is correct. It allows for external stimuli, that perhaps I'm being brainwashed, or perhaps I'm only seeing it the way that I want to see it, or the way that he wants to see it. But maybe I'm not looking at this holistically. Maybe it's not a beautiful vision. Maybe it only works for an individual. Maybe it doesn't work as a group, and so on and so forth. So your ability to live in a community um, definitely definitely where your davenings, your interactions, your daily gatherings are happening there. You're able to now use that as a backdrop, as a place to sense whether or not what you are saying and what you are preaching and what you are doing is correct. Right, so you're focusing not only on community's aspect of growth, but also more specifically on the idea of community as a a way to test, consistently test. Right. Your worldview, right? Now the problem, which essentially, that, which essentially means that the community doesn't surround itself around the rav per se, but surrounds itself around a context and a meta context. Nothing right. to do with the individual rav, right? I think the problem also, though, is that you can have communities, and you do have communities that are preaching things that are not correct. Um, and the way to test that is to see its viability. How long would this community last doing the things that it is doing? even though it is a community, even though they are breathing and preaching the same thing, the same ideology, is that something that we can see that if we pulled it into a grander scheme as well, beyond the community, that would be something that would last? Or even if we kept it as it is, would it last? You know, so you can have breakdowns within communities, and so on and so forth, because that they just cannot scale up their ideas. Right. Maybe moving from specific communities and maybe building more nationally, our end goal, it seems as though, is to have, again, end goal is a bit of a big word, but we are meant to have a national identity as well. Sure. And we do have a national identity as well. So that essentially may, might be looked at as the, the manifestation of many communities interacting, many communities of Israel coming together in one, in one land. Mm-hmm. Could be wrong, maybe you want to elaborate on the idea of Israel and specifically in terms of having a country of context. Yeah, so I, I believe that, you know, like, 
we're definitely going to have 12 tribes hopefully back and these 12 tribes are going to be working together in one land and not every tribe is like the other tribe which is why there's 12 and um, you can tell from the brachot of Yaakov and the kolot essentially kind of that he gives them is their breakdowns and their failures and their ultimate greatest achievements and what how one of them differs from the other Ruvain is like this and Shimon is like this and I'm happy to elaborate but you can clearly see the differences between them and essentially they are all components of an orchestra and you can't have one component of an orchestra that is out of tune but you have to be able to check that individually and holistically right it, it could be in tune but not in the right scale so it, it's got to work harmoniously together the entire community and the only way that you could um, essentially scale it up is scale it up and then see how it works for instance like it may work on an on a community level may work on a tribal level individually this may work perfectly fine but when you start to incorporate other tribes and so on and so forth do you see failures do you see breakdowns so you have to address the failures you have to address the breakdowns why is it that we're breaking down what is it about our individual vision our individual vision that won't open itself up that won't um work <laughs> I guess, in a system that is greater than that. And you have to readdress those issues. And we've been readdressing issues for thousands and thousands of years. Right. You know, we've been trying to work together to work on a holistic vision, and so on and so forth. It seems interesting that the tribes itself usually stay pretty separate. They live in different lands. They marry into, you know, they're into each other. You know, it's, even the Yerushas, you know, it, it gets very complicated very quickly. Is there, a, is there something that is meant... To join us all? Yeah, uh, holidays. Three times a year, we all go to the same place, sleep right outside, doesn't matter where your home is, you all barbecue in the same places, you're interacting and so on and so forth. And it's not like we're ever, not like we're isolated to a point where we can't, you know, visit Shevet Dunn and Shevet Nafeli and so on and so forth. You know, those are always possibilities, uh, uh, especially places of city, and you would have to. If you want to get certain things done, Zavulin works by the sea. So if you wanted things to be coming importing and exporting, you'd got to go to somebody in Zavulin. And if you wanted to be speaking to a Talmud Chacham, you'd, well, you'd go to Yisachar. And if you wanted to speak to a king, well, then you're going to Yehuda. And so on and so forth. So, so um, yeah, I mean, all of these things come together as different ingredients that make together, you know, the collective whole. And it just comes together in just one beautiful orchestra. Right. Maybe more on a personal question, sure. but you live in Miami. Yeah. Why don't you move in to Israel? Um, it's a good question. I would love to. The answer is I would love to. Um, if you blame it on the wife, we can edit it out. Hmm. Uh, I would love to. I would literally love to. Um, I think that it is extremely important for me. Maybe not something that I could scale up for everyone. But what I do believe is that it might also be true for everyone to have a parnasa, to be able to support a family, to be able to get the things that your family wants for them. Because first and foremost, in the halachot of tzedakah, tzedakah is personal. You get the things that your family needs and your family wants and their desires and so on and so forth. And there are certain things that hold a person back from making a jump like that to Israel, be it monetarily, be it familial. So, for instance, if I was to take away my wife and my son from Miami specifically, then they would not have the exposure to what their family is and their own identity is growing up on holidays, Shabbat, and they would lose an element of that identity that has been so, so central to them.
So the question is, how do you quantify that? Right. Is being in Israel worth all of that? It requires a serious chesbon nefesh, one that I do almost every night, uh, specifically regarding that. If I was able to provide some connection between the two, if I was able to connect synthesis, synthesis between those two worlds of Israel and not losing anything, and I would move in a heartbeat. In a heartbeat. Maybe more of a controversial question, but there's a, a lot of uh, talk regarding Yom Atzmut amongst the religious community. Sure. And specifically, uh, maybe this is more of a you know halachic questions of halal and not halal. But maybe you want to maybe you want to share your ideas on the ideas of Yom Atzmut, maybe yeah. on the halal. So I've heard this from my Rebbeim, uh, one of them in particular, Rabbi Dweck, and I hold very strongly by the statement that he had said, and I'm only paraphrasing here, but the failure, I believe, of the people to understand is regardless if you believe in the current state of Israel as being the utopian state, regardless if that's what you believe, that Israel is perfect in its current state, the ability is what a person should recognize is that we're home for the first time in 2,000 years. And that's something that my grandfather fought his life to be able to make happen. That's something that his grandfather would have never dreamed of. That's something that his great-grandfather would have never even conceived of. It's something that his great-grandfather would have never even spoken of as a wish. And it, was always a fore, it was always a forethought, a possibility somewhere down the line, but never actual. And for the first time in 2,000 years, we're home. So I believe that that says a lot, and I believe like any nation and like any person goes through our development stages, and we are just at the beginning of development in terms of what the nation could be. But we are closer to the end because we're home. Right. Maybe let's move towards uh, holidays Mm -hmm. that uh, there's no controversy on. Uh, Shavuot maybe. So right now we're preparing day by day towards accepting Torah. So maybe you want to speak about uh, what we're doing in our Seferat Omer and how you're preparing yourself um, towards that Chag. Uh, Shavuot. Um, um, I tell you what I always try to do personally. And this may be um, not the question that you guys asked, so you can tell me if I'm wrong. But I always try to see where the Torah shows us this holiday. Right? What's the point of a holiday in general? So I start off there. What's the point of a holiday in general? Why is it called a holiday? What is it meant to achieve for us as individuals, for us as a nation? Um, how does the Torah describe it? Why does it describe it in so many different ways and in so many different places? I think that's a huge place to start. And then also, again, what's its identity? What's its name? What are the characteristics of the holiday? What is it that, is, what is it that the day achieves? Uh, what is it that the day is provided for us in terms of Shavuot provides Matan Torah? All right, well, what does that mean? Where were we? What was it? What does this actually affect then and now? And how does it correlate to me in my life? So I kind of start there, and then I um, kind of dissect the holiday. And I can tell you what I've come out with, but I think that's like a class more than like, right. you know. But what I'm doing personally to prepare is I believe what everyone does on some conscious level is that every day is meant to be the sipur, right, uh, the, the story 
um, not just a count of, right, because anybody can count to 50, but it, the point is that it's supposed to be a story, a sefirata omer, in the sense that it's meant to be intimate, and you're telling over the story of your life and how each day is connected to the next day. It's a storyline of what you're trying to achieve at the end goal, and look at what I've achieved this year. And you focus on that for 50 days. And the, the why, um, why does it have to be the way that it is? Why does it have to be the count? Counting up, why does it count in general? Why does the counting appear not as a specific date on the calendar, but only after the harvest is done, which is uniquely weird. I mean, every other holiday you have, yeah. every single other holiday, you have a specific date that it is meant to be. Yom Kippur is the 10th of Tishrei, Rosh Hashanah is the first, and so on and so forth. Every single Pesach, the 15th of Nisan, all of them a specific date except for Shavuot. It is meant to be counted the Shabbat after the end of the harvest. Well, that's really weird. So what day is it? Does not judge based on the lunar, it's not judged based on the solar. Just whenever the harvest is over, then you start counting. So you're entirely on, dependent on agriculture and you're waiting for the agriculture and that's when you begin counting. All right, well then, so that's a weird notion. So why is this one unique in this sense? And how does that have anything to do with what is it trying to achieve and how does it help it, in a sense, achieve it? So I definitely want to be respectful of your time. So I think we'll we'll stop this here. Yeah, I think we'll end the conversation here. And thanks so much for sitting with us. Yeah, Shlomo, thank you so much. Thank you, guys. It's a lot of fun.